Some of you are new faces in this congregation today because we are going to have a special speaker this morning. Um, before Jacques and I came to this church, we were at a church in Altadena, Four Square Church in Altadena, for quite a long time. And so there are many new faces, not new to us, but new to some of you, from our old church there. Um, and I get the pleasure of introducing someone who's very dear to us. He was our pastor for over 10 years. He fathered us in a lot of different ways, um, learning to hear God's voice and, and learning how to minister to people, learning who God is. And um, I was just um, going over and over, like, how, I just want to, like, how could I introduce him? And <laughs> it's all good, I promise. I wanted to read this part of scripture because it kind of gives a picture of Pastorel. And it's Paul. And, and in, in Philippians, Paul says, Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. That picture right there makes me think of Pastorel. Pastorel has been our pastor before, but he still keeps in contact with people and sends encouraging notes, just like Paul did to the Christians of the time, and says, keep going. I'm proud of you. I'm praying for you. I'm here for you. I'm your friend. And he encourages us, and he has he is partnered not just with us, but he, partnered with, he partners with many people. He, is, uh, he has served on the legal council for Foursquare. He's pastored. He's involved in mission work. Um, and he and his wife now live in Gainesville, Florida, where he's been there for about four years. Yeah. And uh, so it is my pleasure, my true, true pleasure to introduce to you Pastor L this morning. Come on up. You know, falling apart and I haven't even got started. <laughs> all right, is that all right? Good. Hey, good morning. good morning. It's good to see all of you, old and new. That is a really bright light. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, hey. I'm, uh, I'm really thankful to be here. I wish my wife were here with me, um, and uh, I hope that someday, someday soon she'll, she will be able to come back and be here and, and meet all of you and see some of you uh, again that we've known in years past, and we, whether it's the first time I've met you or whether it's a, a reunion of sorts, I'm, I'm really glad to see you. I'm really glad you're here. And, uh, and Pastor Barry, I, I so appreciate you. I s appreciate uh, what a gift you are to this congregation. You know, the, the scripture says that, uh, that a pastor is a gift to the congregation. And uh, so you should value, value the gift that the Lord has given you. And, and I do. I'm thankful for our friendship. Um, we have a connection through Life Pacific University where he is on the faculty. And I've just been elected 
to another five-year term, so you might see me another time or two. Uh, um, that'll keep me coming back here occasionally. And I, uh, I just appreciate the opportunity for our friendship to grow. Uh, so God bless you. And I appreciate so much the, uh, the theme you're doing this year, God Is. It's, uh, wow, it's, a, it's an awesome theme. It's, uh, of course, an, uh, an inexhaustible theme. Um, and it, uh, from my perspective, it's a little bit of an intimidating theme. I've been listening to uh, your pastor's sermons uh, to kind of get a sense for what was being said and how, how the direction we're going. And after listening to them, I, I told Pastor Barry last Friday when, or earlier in the week when we saw each other, I said, Barry, this is, those are great sermons, but mine compar- by comparison will be kind of God is the light version. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, I, just, I just bring the plain vanilla. And, uh, uh, and that's, uh, that's my contribution. The Holy Spirit's contribution, however, will be a lot more significant. If, uh, if you will give him room and opportunity to, uh, to speak to you. Well, one of the scriptures that was in your, uh, your reading for this week is found over in Ephesians chapter 1. And I just want to read that to kind of set the tone before we pray. Beginning in uh, chapter 1 of Ephesians and, and verse 3, it says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Can you say that with me? Every spiritual blessing. That was pathetic. (laughs) Ready? One, two, three. Every spiritual blessing. Yes. Amen. In Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And we're going to camp out there this morning in those three words, in his sight. Um, of course, we know that God is everywhere, right? I mean, that's, that theme is made abundantly clear all through Scripture. And if you, 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 you need a capsule version of it, just go to Psalms 139, where the psalmist says, Lord, I've tried out running you, and I can't find a place where you're not, you're not already there. He says, I've gone to the highest mountain, and you're there, and I've gone to the deepest part of the valleys, and you're there. And even when I went to the blackest place I could find, that place was like light to you. You're there, too. So, God, since you're everywhere, would you just look me over and check me out, look under the hood, and, and my, my, my paraphrase, of course. <laughs> and if you see anything that's wrong, God, would you fix it and teach me how to live the way you want me to live? So God is everywhere. He, he, there's no place you can go where you can't find him, which is really good news. Um, but it's a lot more personal than that. I mean, we say that that particular fact about God is, is what we say. God is omnipresent. And if that were just all that there is in that, it would be kind of like saying, well, he's like Mother Nature, you know. But it's, it's a lot more personal than that. And it's that personal aspect that I want to spend some time with this morning. God is uh, the one who sees me. And we're going to unpack that by by looking at three uh, people in Scripture. We're going to look at a servant girl, and we're going to look at a hidden woman, 
and we're going to look at a forgotten man. So let's just pray for a moment, and then uh, we'll, we'll dive in, okay? Well, Lord, we count ourselves as the most blessed, incredibly blessed people who could ever live. You live in us. Your Holy Spirit lives in us. And you call us your sons and your daughters. And compared to that, everything else you've given us is as wonderful as it is, Lord, inconsequential. So, Lord, we, we take everything that we have, all of, uh, all of our wealth and all of our our time on this earth and all of our plans and all of our ambitions and uh, all of the, the relationships we have, uh, all the things that you've put around us in our homes to make us uh, be able to live comfortably. We take everything, everything, and we lay them at your feet, Lord. And we say none of it compares to the joy of knowing you. None of it. And we invite you, we invite you, Jesus, to talk to us this morning. We, we, we long to hear whatever you want to tell us. And I believe, Lord, that you have a personal, personal word for each person here. So, Lord, we, we give ourselves to you. We give this time to you. We ask you to open our ears. Help us to hear. Help us to see. Help us to be changed by spending this time together seeking your face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the, the, the servant girl. We find her story over in Genesis chapter 16, and, and I will read it. In, uh, we'll, read, we'll read the text in uh, just a few moments. Let's, let's don't put it up just quite yet. Because um, I, I want to just give you some context first for the story, because we don't have time to read the whole story. So, so let me just do a flyover and uh, give you the context. Um, in this story, you, you remember the people that we call Abraham and Sarah. Well, they're not called Abraham and Sarah yet. They're called Abram and Sarai, which we'll talk about some other time, perhaps. Um, but Abram uh, was given this wonderful promise by God um, that God would show him the land and uh, bless his offsprings, and his descendants would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, and they would own that land forever and ever and ever, and that God would always be with them, God would always be their God. Uh, well, but there was one problem when, uh, at, at this point in the story that we're going to look at in a moment. Uh, the problem was Abram and Sarai were getting kind of old, and they didn't have any children. Uh, matter of fact, at this point in the story, Abram is 85 and Sarai is 75. And so I think we could safely say, you know, their biology probably works pretty much the same as ours. And so they were past time. They were kind of over the hill. And it wasn't looking too promising that they were going to be able to experience this, this wonderful, uh, the realization of this wonderful promise that the Lord had given them. So Sarai, she has a good idea. She says, well, let's help God out. And so she says, well, hey, Abram, I've got this servant girl. She's, check her out. She's not too bad. Uh, and, and I'd like you to uh, feel free to, 
to go in and, and have relationships with her. And perhaps, perhaps um, you'll be able to father through her what you haven't been able to do with me. And if she has a child, we'll count that child as ours. That'll be our, our child. And, and this must be how God had, had planned to do all this. Um, and so um, Abram says that's a good idea. And uh, he goes into the servant girl, sleeps with her. Her name is Hagar, and Hagar gets pregnant. So far, so good, right? But people are people. And the plan pretty soon goes off the rails. Uh, Hagar gets the big head because she can get pregnant, and Sarai, her, her, her master, can't. So I don't know exactly how she acted that out, whether she got mouthy or, or, but somehow she showed her attitude and Sarah noticed and she didn't like it. So Sarah gets really ticked and people are people. Instead of getting ticked at Sarah, at Hagar, Sarah gets ticked at Abram. Hey, you caused this. You did this. I'm not happy with the situation. And Abram, like a good leader, strong man, he goes totally MIA. <laughs> he, he basically says, I ain't getting into this. I'm not getting between you two. This was your idea. You figure it out. <laughs> and so Sarai, she says, uh, well, two can play this game. And so she begins mistreating Hagar, just you know, she has her attitude, and she begins just making life pretty tough for Hagar. And uh, Hagar just gets fed up, and she runs away. Miserable and pregnant, she runs away. Now, it, I don't think it takes a lot of imagination at this point to, to think about what Hagar is, what's going through her mind. I mean, how many would say she's probably pr pretty angry? Yeah, I, I think it's, that's a safe bet. Hey, I submitted. I even submitted to being, you know, used sexually. And, uh, and, and what do I get? Just a bunch of attitude from Sarai, you know, harsh treatment. So she's angry. I, I think also she's probably feeling rejected. Rejected. If my child was going to be part of the family, doesn't that mean I'm going to be part of the family too? No, uh-uh. She's still being treated like a servant girl. So she's probably feeling some rejection. And I think probably at the point in the story that we're going to pick up at, I think she's probably feeling pretty afraid. Have you ever had those situations where you, in a moment of, of a strong emotion, usually anger, but it could be something else, but strong emotion, you make a decision, you, go, you bolt out, you do something, and then later reality sets in and you're thinking, what did I just do? What do I do now? And, and that's where Hagar is. I think when we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 16 and verse, verse 7. So let's read that. And we see the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, found Hagar. Now, I'm going to just camp out a few places along the way. First of all, uh, the angel of the Lord, most likely, I, I think this is an Old Testament appearance of the Lord. As we get through the story, you'll see that, that the way the angel is speaking very much sounds like the Lord. And I think, they, I think it's a pretty safe bet that this was Jesus. Uh, 
I don't know what he looked like, but, but, but Hagar knows what he looked like because she says she sees him. We'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, so the angel of the Lord finds Hagar, and that's pretty interesting, too, because, you know, we have this expression, I found God. Well, you didn't find God. <laughs> Nobody finds God. God finds us. So, so the angel of the Lord finds Hagar, and verse 8, he, he says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? Now, I'm certain God already knows the answers to these questions. <laughs> but God asks questions. He does ask questions. My, my life pivoted on a question that he asked me, and I, uh, that's another story, too. I won't go down that trail. But God asks us questions, not because he doesn't know the answer, but because we don't know the answer. Or maybe we do know the answer, but we don't want to look at the answer. We don't want to see the answer. We want to keep it buried down deep where it doesn't have to be dealt with. But you know what? God is such a good God. He just won't put up with that. You know, because he wants relationship with, with us so much, he won't let a sin, especially a sin as big as rebellion, which is where Hagar is at this point, he won't let it stay hidden. He wants to get it out in the open and deal with it. And so he says, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? Hey, hey, what's your plan? And she says, I'm running away. I'm running away from my mistress. Well, good for her. At least she gives an honest answer. I'm running away. I don't have a destination. Don't know where I'm going, but I'm running away. And in verse 9 and 10, we see how the Lord responds. He gives her a command and a promise. He says, go back and submit. He says, if you do, I will increase your offspring. You're going to have too many offspring to count, which, which is significant because basically he's giving Hagar part of the promise and part of the blessing that he gave to Abram. So go back, and I'm going to increase your offspring. Your offspring are going to be too many to count. Even now you are pregnant. You have a son. Now, she knew she was pregnant already, but she didn't know it was going to be a boy. So even now you're pregnant. You're going to have a son. And then the, the best part, if you're in the habit of underlining your Bible, you ought to underline this part where he says, for the Lord has heard your misery. For the Lord has heard your misery. And Hagar responds. In verse 13, we see her response. She says, she gave, the, the, the text says, she gave the name of the Lord to the one who spoke to her. She says, you are the God who sees me. You are the God who sees me, for I have seen the one who sees me. Interesting uh, observation along the way. Hagar is the only woman in the entire Bible to whom the name, a name for the Lord was given. All the rest of those revelations are, come through men, uh, uh, typically prophets. But Hagar has the unique distinction of being a woman to whom God gave a revelation of his character and, and, and his nature. She says, you, you are, I have seen the one who sees me. You are the one who sees me. And, and in the earliest manuscripts, that literally says, you, God, see me. Well, that's getting it right down to the basics. You, God, see me. And I have seen the one who sees me. 
And that's an interesting phrase there. The, 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 the one who sees me is, is the words El Roi. And, and uh, but, but you will not ask Barry later if I'm pronouncing that right because I don't know. <laughs> I don't teach in Bible college and there's a good reason for that. Uh, but, I, but I pronounce it El, El Roi. Maybe it's El Roi. But anyway, it means the strong one who sees. The strong one who sees. So, so we begin our, our, our unpacking of this truth by looking at the girl, the servant girl, to whom God gave, first gave this revelation, that God is the, the strong one who sees us. Well, the next story is over in the New Testament, it's, and it's, uh, I, I call it the, the story of the hidden woman. Uh, I've never heard anybody else refer to it that way, but, but I, I think you'll... you'll You'll agree with me. Um, this is a story that's found both in uh, Luke and in, in Mark. Uh, we're going to look at the Luke passage, which is, if you want to turn over there, don't, don't start reading it, but you can turn over there. It's Luke chapter 8. Um, and I, again, I want to set up the context for you. Uh, the way this story begins, Jesus has, uh, uh, has been teaching. Um, he's come across the lake. He did some miracles on the other side of the lake. He comes across the lake. He does some teaching on the lake and then, uh, or in the town, he doesn't say the name of the town, probably Capernaum, but it could be any number of towns, villages that were around the lake. And uh, a man comes and says, uh, please, Rabbi, please come in and heal my daughter. She's really sick. Would you please come? Because I don't know if she's going to live. She's, she's, she's bad. She's really sick. And so Jesus says, I'll, I'll come. And so as he's making his way through the streets, the streets are very crowded. It's maybe it's market day in the town. I don't know, but the streets are really crowded. Some of the people that were there un, undoubtedly because they were there to hear Jesus. They were trying to see Jesus. Maybe they were trying to get a, you know, kind of get his personal attention on them. Uh, maybe other people are there just because it's, you know, it's just a busy day in town. I don't know, but the streets were jammed with people. I mean, just jammed. And you've been, you know, I go to football games, and I know what it's like to be in a crowd where you can just barely, you know, you're, you're just kind of trying to sh shoulder your way through the crowd. That's how, that's how I picture it when, in my mind, that he's trying to shoulder his way through the crowd. And uh, that's the point in time when a woman in the crowd enters the story. And we don't know this woman's name. The scripture doesn't tell us this woman's name, but, he, but the scripture does tell us something about her. We know, first of all, she's sick. She has a chronic ailment, uh, and her ailment is that she's had an issue, a flow of menstrual blood. And this has gone on for 12 years. Uh, you ladies know that that probably means that she was exhausted most of the time, um, and uh, she... In trying to get help for herself, she had seen all the doctors. None of the doctors had been able to cure her, but they all got paid. And so, see, she's sick, and she's out of money. She's, she's exhausted all the options about who could possibly help her, and, uh, and she's getting worse. She's getting worse. And, and, and to make the whole situation worse, this particular affliction meant that under Jewish law, she was unclean. Now, unclean for a, a Jewish man meant that, you know, if I touch an unclean person or an unclean thing, it means that I cannot go to, to, the, to the temple and bring my sacrifice to the priests. I, I can't because I'm unclean. 
And if, and if you're a priest or a Levi, it means I can't do my job. I've been made unclean, and so I can't go and, and serve at the, at, the, at the altar of the Lord, and, and I can't go in to light the candles. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm disqualified because I've been made unclean because I touched somebody else or something else that was unclean. So this lady has been in that condition of being unclean for 12 years. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to, to think about what did that mean for her social relationships. I'm sure, she, even though she's trying to keep it unknown, it's known to some degree. The neighbors know, of course, and the family knows, of course, and they people talk. And so, you know, she's got a real problem socially as well as financially and medically. But she hears about Jesus. Even though she's desperate, broke, sick, getting worse, out of money, out of answers, even though she's afraid, she's afraid to go out in public, afraid of discovery, afraid of her future, she's hopeful because she's heard of this man, Jesus. She's heard what he's been saying, and she's heard about what he's been doing. She's heard that he heals other people. And into her heart springs this little seed of hope. If he heals other people, maybe he can heal me. But there's a problem. How, how do I reach him? In fact, even if I could get close to him, he can't touch me. He, you know, he, the, the, the rabbi is not going to touch me, an unclean woman. And, I, and I, I don't dare touch him and make him unclean. And then she has an idea. Maybe I can just touch his coat. Maybe I can just get a hold of his, his cloak. Just, if I can just touch the hem, just, you know, just a stroke of it as he passes by, I think that'll be just enough. And so that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 44. And let me just look over there. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 44. Okay. Uh, she came up behind him, and she touched the edge of his cloak. And immediately, her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter stepped up. Master, master, get serious. <laughs> People are all crowding around you. They're pressing against you. You can't be serious. Everybody's touching you. <laughs> but Jesus says, no, no, no. Somebody touched me. I don't mean that way. I mean this. In the, in the, spiritually, somebody touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, let's go to this next verse, the God who sees me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. 
This moment for this woman had to have been a moment of just abject terror, panic. She's outed. She's exposed. What's the rabbi going to do? He, 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 he knows that an unclean woman has touched him. What, what is he going to do? Is he going to take back the healing? She knows she got healed. Is he going to take it back? Is he going to curse her? Is he going to shame her in front of everyone? Is he even going to say she should be stoned? Breathlessly, trembling at his feet, she wonder, she waits to learn what her fate is going to be. And Jesus, Elroy, the one who sees, he takes it all in by the Holy Spirit. He sees her social stigma. He sees her fear. He sees that the Holy Spirit has healed her, that powers come out of him. And he sees that his next words will turn the situation one way or another. What does Jesus say? What does he do? Well, he says to her, daughter, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Daughter, not woman, not hey you, not person on the street, not passerby, daughter. He makes her part of his family. And then he reassures her, her healing is real and it's lasting. Your faith has, not maybe, not for this time, for this, just this moment, maybe it'll be gone tomorrow. No, your faith has healed you. And then he blesses her future. Go in shalom. Go in the peace of God. It's okay. It's okay, daughter. It's okay. She found out that she could not stay hidden. Well, let's look at the third story. And this one we find over in John chapter 5, and this is the story, uh, again, in my opinion, uh, it should be called the story of the forgotten man. And the context, again, we have another unnamed man. Matter of fact, we're going to read, let's read the story, and then I'll make some comments about it. now there in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which is in the Arabic is called Bethesda, which means, by the way, it means flow of grace. Uh, here, uh, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease he had. And one was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, let's just stop right there. So again, we don't know the man's name, but we do know that he's lame. He couldn't walk. We don't know when he became lame or how old he was when he became lame, but he's been coming to this place for 38 years. No, he's been an invalid for 38 years. So he's been, we don't know how it happened or how old he was when it happened, but for 38 year, years, he's been unable to walk. And because he's unable to walk, we know he's also unable to work. 
And because he can't work, we know he couldn't support himself. And because he couldn't support himself, we also know that he certainly could not support a family. So if he became lame when he was a child, he probably has never married. He's never had children. I mean, what, what good Jewish father is going to give his daughter to a lame man who can't work? Or if he was married when this happened, most likely his family's fallen apart. The woman has taken the kids and gone back to her parents because he can't support them. And so in this situation of being crippled and being alone, he goes to the pool of Bethesda every day. Bethesda, again, means house of grace. And the pool is named that because of what's happening there. It's a place where people get healed. When the water is stirred, they get healed. Now, now some commentators have suggested, well, it didn't really happen. That you know, that that that's that's you know, some some manuscripts even don't say that. I think it did happen, and I think the best evidence is that people kept coming there. Not just a few. A lot of people kept coming there because they wanted to experience what happened there. Healing. Now, again, we don't, we don't know how, how often it happened. We know that this grace that stirred the water healed people, but did it happen every day? Was it once a week? Was it once a month? A few times a year? I don't know. Would, would it happen a bunch of times in just a few days and then nothing for six months? We don't know. But it happened often enough that sick people kept coming. They came and they waited and they hoped. And when they saw the water moving, they did their best to be the first one in the water. A great multitude, a great number of disabled people trying to get healed at the pool of grace. So this man was just one of many, just one more crippled man in the crowd, one more in a throng of sick people, dozens, maybe hundreds of people, blind, deaf, lame, sick people, all laying around this pool of water, hoping, I hope, I'm the, I hope the water moves while I'm here today, and I hope I can get there first. Now, we don't know how many years he's been coming but we do know that he's probably been brought there by somebody. I say brought because someone had to bring him. He, he couldn't walk there himself. He's lame. He couldn't uh, walk anywhere. He had no wheelchair. So, I don't know, maybe, maybe an aged father brought him. Or a brother. Maybe he had a kind neighbor. But somehow, some way, somebody brought him to that pool every day. And he had been there when the miracle had happened. Not just once, but a bunch of times. He had been there when other people got in the water and got healed. But he was never able to get into the water in time. As he limped and hobbled and scooted his cripple way from wherever he was laying, he always got pushed aside and somebody else got there in front of him. 
always too late. Someone else got their blessing. Not him. Never him. So that's why I, in my mind, I was thinking, well, he probably is, feels like the forgotten man. Just everybody else seems to get theirs, but it's never my day. So in that setting, what happens? Verse 6. When Jesus saw him, when Elui saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for so long, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, at first glance, you're thinking, Jesus, come on, that's a lame question. Really, Lord, that's a no-brainer. What do you think I've been coming here for? But Jesus is pushing in. It's an important question. Oftentimes, the truth is, even though we say we want to get well, we don't really want to get well. We'd rather have our illness or have our addiction. We prefer the sympathy. We've gotten comfortable with the excuses that 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 brings. We prefer the medication to dull the pain. We prefer the reason for not trying. It's a probing question that should ask us to be honest with ourselves and with the Lord. And I I just ask you this, and you don't have to raise your hand, of course, but I just ask you to think about this. Have you ever or do you now allow whatever your problem or situation to be to define you? Well, I'm, I'm Maurice, the failure. I'm Paulette, the sick woman. I'm Ed, the foster child. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm Bill, the, the bankrupt man. We can allow our circumstances to define our identity. Well, the man answers Jesus, verse 7. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool. When the water bubbles up, someone else always gets there ahead of me. Now, I I have a confession to make. Whenever, for a lot of years, whenever I would read that, I would think, he he totally wussed that. He he dodged the question. He didn't answer Jesus' question at all. He's just making it an excuse. Jesus says, you want to get healed? And he says, hey, I, I got nobody to help me. But I, I, as I've continued to pray and think about this over the years, I, I've come to a place where I, I, I believe there's something else going on here. I, th- I think in truth, the man was answering the question. He just was answering a different question. Jesus said, do you want to get well? But what the man heard was, why haven't you been healed by now? And it's a question that we sometimes ask other people. You know, hey, why, why don't you have a job by now? Why, why haven't you stopped drinking by now? Why don't you have yourself together by now? Why haven't you made something of yourself by now? Why haven't you got your act together by now? And, and, and the question is the implied statement 
it must be your fault. You, you, you know, God, the problem isn't with God, so it must be you. What's going on in your life that you can't get God to help you? I think sometimes we ask ourselves that same question. I think we find ourselves saying, what's wrong with me? Why, why am I such a failure? And the worst thing is sometimes we ask God that question, and then we answer it in ways that are not truth. God, is there something wrong with me? Why, why won't you help me? And there's Satan there just saying, well, I can, tell you, I can answer that one for you. You know, he didn't like you. Well, God, why won't you heal me? Well, because you're not on God's list today. Maybe not even tomorrow. You know, the devil's right there to supply an answer. And so the lame man answers the question that he thinks is being asked. Why aren't you healed by now? And his answer is, it's not my fault. I've been trying. I come every day. I try to get to the water when it stirs. I've tried, but I'm always too late. I can't get there by myself. I don't have anyone to help me. I don't have the money to hire someone. It's not my fault. That's why I don't have myself together. It's not my fault. And Jesus sweeps all of that aside. In verse 8 and 9, Jesus tells him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat, and he began walking. And, and all of this, you know, this is all understanding I've arrived at. I don't ask you to agree with me, but it's, it's, it's where I've arrived at in this and, and then the most recent time that I visited this story, I asked the Lord this. I said, Lord, if this man has tried so many times to get in the water and he's failed every single time, why does he keep coming back? There are other places he could go. He, he could go to the temple gate. And, you know, we know in, book, in the book of Acts that other lame people went to the temple gate. And, in fact, one of them got healed by Peter and John. He could go to the sheep gate, which verse 2 in this chapter says, you know, that, that was right outside. Probably easier to get to than where he's going. There was a lot of other places in the city he could have gone, probably a lot more convenient, a lot less distance, where a lot more visitors and travelers are there, probably a much bigger place to beg. You know, there's a reason why the beggars go to Starbucks to beg instead of the welfare office. So why, why does he keep going back to the pool of Bethesda? Was it just force of habit? Was his helper saying, no, I'm taking you there or nowhere? Or was it just, I mean, he could have just stayed home. So why, Lord, why did he keep come, coming to the place of grace, the place of Bethesda, the house of grace, why did he keep coming and leaving still lame day after day after day, month after month, year after year? Why did he keep doing it? Put it in yet another way. When Jesus said to him, pick up your bat and walk, why didn't he answer, I just told you I can't. 
Why? And I, I believe the answer to me from the Lord was this. In spite of his um, overwhelming history of fa- repeated failures, failed attempts, this man had not lost hope. Even after many times of disappointment, he had not given up hope of being healed. He still had hope in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He went every day saying, maybe this day is my day. Maybe this day is my day. Jack, why don't you bring the worship team up? Let me just uh, give you some final thoughts here to kind of bring this to a, a point. God is... God is El Ruai, the one who sees me. In each of these three stories, each of these people had a moment of truth, a moment of brutal honesty, a moment of decision where they had to decide Do we go on like we've been going or do we turn around and change? And the Bible calls that repent. Do I keep going the way I've been going or do I repent? Hagar was asked, where are you going? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? I'm running away, she says. And the question she had to decide was, am I going to keep running or am I going to go back? The, the woman with the issue of blood, when the question was shouted out to the crowd, who touched me? She had a decision to make. Will I stay hidden or come out in the open? She wanted to be blessed, but she wanted to be blessed while staying hidden. And love doesn't work that way. Love works in the open. So she had to decide, am I going to stay hidden or am I going to come in the open? The man at the pool, do you want to get well? Will you move past your excuses and take hold of God's gift with the faith he's already given you? And if the answer is yes, pick up your mat and walk. Sometimes I, I think we fear, we fear confession. We fear being honest with the Lord, the one who sees us. He, he, there's nothing we, have, we can hide so well that he doesn't know about it. But we hide from ourselves and we want to hide from other people. And we're afraid that if we just come out in the open and be who we are, that somehow Jesus won't like us. Or that Jesus won't bless us or will take his blessings away from us. Each one of these people had to confront their fear. And decide, am I going to keep going? Am I going to keep running? Am I going to keep hiding? Am I going to keep making excuses? Or am I going to let the one who sees me 
know who I really am, know where I really am, and let them change my, let him change my life. I pick these stories not because each one of them highlights the word he sees me in some way, but also because each of them made the right decision at that moment of truth. Hagar thought she was mistreated, unimportant, and unnoticed, even by God. But she found out that God has his eye on her, that she has his undivided attention, that she's important to him, she matters to him, and God has a future for her and a purpose for her life. The woman with the, with the blood issue... She didn't want to be seen. Yes, she wanted to be blessed, but she didn't want to be known. For some of us, that's how we deal with church. Yeah, we want to come and be blessed, but we don't want to be outed for who we really are so that God could heal us in the context of a loving community. But when she said yes, yes, she fell at his feet and waited and confessed what she had done. She discovered that Elruai's love is bigger than her fear. The man at the pool discovered that what he thought would be condemnation was compassion. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. So, the last slide... He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Not to live in the shadows, but to live in full view of God. There will be many, many times in your walk with the Lord where he will ask you questions and make you look at things that you don't want to look at and ask you to turn around. Not because he's trying to expose you or condemn you, but because he wants to heal you. Because his ultimate purpose is holy and blameless. Holy and blameless. He says, I see the potential I have put in you. And if you'll work with me by saying yes, I'll bring it out. I'll bring it out. Uh, I, I don't know everybody that's here. I know some well, and I know others not at all. And be, because I don't know, I'm going to just take a moment to say, this could be the day when you decide that you want to know Jesus instead of just knowing about him. He knows everything there is to know about you. He sees the very worst you can be. And he also sees your potential. But he's asking you, will you come out of the darkness and come into the light? Will you stop running and let me heal you and let me love you? Let me put my compassion on you like a garment. So I want to just ask just every head bow, every eyes closed for just a moment. If there's anyone here this morning 
anyone at all, you, you say, you know, I, I've, I've been coming, maybe, maybe you said, I've I'm, I'm been coming to church, but I'm, I've been like that hidden woman. I don't want anybody to know what's really in me. I'm, I'm not going to out you. I don't want to know what your sins or secrets are, but, but I can tell you Jesus already knows, and he just wants you to be honest with him and say, Lord, you know what's there. I want to know you. I, I, I'm, I'm, not just, I'm not here for your blessing. I'm here for you. I want to know you. I want to invite you into my life. From this day forward, I want you to be the most important person in my life. Anybody that you're saying, yeah, I, I've, I've known about Jesus from afar, but today I want to make him my Savior. I want to make him my, my Lord of my life. I want to just see your hand right now. Just nobody looking, just you and me. Just slip your hand up and back down. I'm over here on my right, your left, the left side of the room, the other side. Okay, good. I see your hand. Anybody else? Anybody else? This is your day. This is your time. The Lord has said, I can change your life. I can create something in you that you can't even imagine. It's so beautiful. All right. I want to just invite everybody to pray with me for this one young man. Would you just pray to right now? Lord, pray this with me. Lord Jesus, I give my life to you. I'm not running anymore. I'm not hiding anymore. I'm not making excuses anymore. I want you. I'm asking you to forgive my sins and make me into the person that you've created me to be. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Now, again, just eyes closed, head bowed. As I said, there's going to be a lot of places in your Christian experience, not just one time at salvation, but over and over again, Jesus will bring you to those places where he says, you know, I I want you to stop running from this. I want you to stop hiding from this situation. I I want you to stop making excuses about this. I don't know what those areas are, but, but if, if he's talking to you this morning, you know what they are, and he certainly knows what they are. And I would count it a real privilege just to pray with you. I'm not going to out you, don't, don't want to know, but, but uh, I know how he's dealt with me. And I know in my life he will not let any sin stay in secret. He loves me too much. He loves me too much, and his plans for me are too big to let me hide. So again, with eyes closed, heads bowed, if anybody, you'd say, yeah, I'm tired of running, I'm tired of hiding, tired of making excuses, I want to just give it all to Jesus. I want to give that area to Jesus. Would you just slip your hand up right now and back down? Anybody at all? Yes, I see that. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you for your honesty, yes. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, Lord, we're your kids. It does not even yet appear. We can't even imagine the destiny you have for us. The glory that you're going to wrap around us in glorified bodies around your throne. 
Lord, we want your plan more than we want to hold on to our excuses, our problems, our fears. We want what you have for us. So, Lord, I pray for each one of these that raise their hands, whatever the issue is, whatever the secret is, Lord, between you and them, I'm asking you to, first of all, forgive. Thank you, Lord, that you're a forgiving God, that there's no condemnation right now. But more than that, Lord, I'm asking that you would deliver and heal and restore and mend the breach and heal the wound. And where there's been sorrow and fear and shame, that, Lord, you would fill them. Fill them with the joy of your presence with the pleasure of your smile. We love you, Jesus. Amen.